No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. We are continuing in our series called The Upper Room. And during this series, we are looking at the last days of Jesus' life here on earth when he gathered together with his 12 disciples in an upper room to share one last meal, the most important meal in the story of Jesus. Now, each of the Gospels tells a story, um, but John's Gospel devotes five chapters describing what Jesus said and did at this meal. Now, I just want to ask you, how do you normally respond when someone asks you, do you want the good news first or do you want the bad news first? Um, I bet a majority of us have been asked that question at one time or another. And I once heard a study that was done by a university a few years back that asked that very question. Do you want the good news first or do you want the bad news first? 78% said they wanted the bad news first because the hope is that the good news will trump the bad news. Anybody else relate to that? Well, if you thought last week's message was a bit uncomfortable, foot washing anyone, here's the bad news. Today's going to be rough. Today's going to be rough. But sometimes you have to go through the hard stuff before you get to the good stuff. So take heart. And in the words of Dr. S.M. Lockridge, and the S.M. stands for, get this, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, and I love that, the famous black preacher who said, it's Friday, it's dark, but Sunday, Sundays are coming. Amen? Amen. So on that, let's pray. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And God, we thank you for your presence here this morning because it truly is everything to us. And so God, I pray, and I don't say this lightly, that you would crack us wide open as, and expose some things in us as, you, as we look into your word and we look at some hard stuff. And God, I pray that you would minister to us there, that you would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts to hear what you're saying, and that we would respond, that we would lean in. We love you. We love you for your mercy and your grace extended towards us. And Father, as always, have your way, have your way, have your way with your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So uh, let's set the context um, before we join Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. Now, the leadership of the Jewish nation wants Jesus dead, and we're seeking a way to arrest Jesus, to kill him. And the question now is, how do they do it? You see, because they have a problem. It's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that means that anywhere from half a million to two million pilgrims have descended upon Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had taken over the temple and had been teaching there daily, and he had gathered quite a significant following. And John 11 tells us that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, 
and the whole city is in an uproar as news of this incredible miracle has spread. Now, the Jewish re leaders realize that they have, if they're going to try and arrest Jesus in broad daylight, they're going to start a riot. Or worse, Rome may get involved and oppress them even further. So they realize they need to take Jesus out, and they can't do it publicly. They will have to find another way. And they get their answer in Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. It says that Judas went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. The irony is that the chief priests are plotting to kill Jesus, but Jesus already knows he's going to die. He already knows. And he has told the disciples this several times, but the disciples don't get it. And frankly, Judas is tired of hearing about it. Jesus is not the Messiah that Judas wanted. You know, from scholars and books to movies and even rock operas, People through the centuries have tried to figure out Judas's motive for betrayal. But perhaps what seems to have broken the camel's back, what could have been the last straw for Judas, were the events that happened right before this in John 12. You see, Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany at a dinner given in his honor, when, according to John's gospel, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, poured an expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes it. With her hair. And it says this, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, did I go too far? There we go. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who, had, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And Mark's gospel says that right then, right then, then Jesus, went, one of the twelve, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear it and promised to give him money. So Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And one arrives the next day. Which leads us to the upper room, where Jesus and his disciples are to celebrate the Passover. Now this meal was a big deal. It was the highlight of the Jewish calendar. You would have this meal and you would gather with your friends and family and celebrate the redemption of God. Now, the Passover had to be celebrated within the city walls. And Jesus has the details of this, um, me this whole meal prepared. And I'm guessing for most of us, we have a mental picture in our mind of how this Passover meal looked, probably influenced by Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, where Jesus is sitting in the middle of a long table with his disciples sitting to the right and to the left of him. You know, that seating arrangement might have been true in da Vinci's day in the 15th century, but not in Jesus' day. Be because it was a formal dinner, they would have sat at a U-shaped table called a triclinium. It was low to the ground and something that you reclined on cushions at. Now, in da Vinci's painting, Jesus is sitting here in the middle. But in the first century... Jesus would have been sitting here. The host would have sat over here because there would have been a table here and a table on that side. 
he would have sat here. This was the place of honor on that side. And as you reclined at the table, you would lean on it with your left arm, bare feet behind you, your shoes at the door, and you would eat with your right hand. And to the host, right and left were places of honor, positions of honor reserved for those closest to him. Now, this isn't going to be any normal Passover. Jesus is going to drop on them a number of bombshells. And we saw one last week. Jesus takes off his rabbinical cloak, his rabbi's cloak, and he dons the garb of a slave. And he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus washes all of their feet, Judas included. Knowing all along where Judas has just been, what he has done, and what he's about to do. You know, I, I get that mental picture in my mind, and, and it tenders me because the humility of majesty, kneeling, washing the feet of his betrayer. It's an extraordinary kneeling kind of love. And when he had finished washing the disciples' feet, he drops another bombshell. And in John 13, 18, Jesus starts to quote Psalm 41, and he says this, he who shared my bread has turned against me. You see, in that culture, when you ate with someone, shared bread, it showed fellowship that we're friends. And he said, someone who is fellowshipping with me here at the Passover is going to sell me out. Jesus isn't surprised by any of it. It's all happening just the way scripture said it would. But it still affects Jesus. How do we know? Look at the next verse. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The message version says that Jesus became visibly upset. Now this tells us that Jesus is not speaking in some detached way. He's not like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. There's always one rotten apple in the, that spoils the bunch. There's always some black sheep in the family. No, he doesn't do that. He's also not flying off the handle and acting all offended, like, how dare you, after all I've done for you. No, he doesn't do that either. He is troubled in spirit. And you know what that term literally means? It means to be torn into pieces. That gives us an insight into the nature and the enormity of sin, which is that it's deeply relational. You see, when you and I um, think of sin, we tend to think of it as breaking the rules or violating some moral law, and it is. But there is more to it than that. In Genesis 6, it says that when God looked down on the earth and saw, that all, saw all the evil and sin, it says, and any translation says this, that God was troubled in his spirit. In other words, his heart was filled with pain, torn into pieces. Now, that Hebrew word for pain that is used in Genesis 6 is also the same word, you, um, you, word for pain used in Genesis 3 when it talks about the result of our sin. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, the result is that now toil is painful, childbirth is painful, life is painful now. You see, God has so bound his heart to us that when he sees us in pain, it causes him pain. Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite authors and speakers, put it this way. When you sin, you not only break God's law, you break God's heart. 
You aren't just breaking an ethical rule. You are trampling on the relationship of the one to whom we owe everything. Jesus is troubled in spirit, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Notice that none of the disciples look down the table and point to Judas and say, yep, we always knew he was a little shady. Like when we would go out and cast demons, Judas's demon never came out. Or when we would go out and cleanse the lepers, Judas's leper never got healed. We always knew something was off with that guy. No, that's not how they respond. Verse 22 says this. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. They don't know. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And I love this. Simon Peter motions to this disciple, hey, John, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. You see, in that culture, when you sat at a feast, one of the first things they, what everybody did was to eat bread that was dipped in a fruit puree of dates, raisins, and wine. And when the host of the um, feast dipped the bread and gave it to somebody, it was a sign of honor, it was a sign of affection, and it was a sign of love. Most commentaries agree that John must have been sitting to the right of Jesus because he is leaning against Jesus, a place of honor. And who is sitting in the other place of honor to his left? It's Judas. Now Jesus has just said, I know one of you is going to betray me. Judas knows that Jesus knows. And it says, as Jesus handed him the bread, handed him the bread, and as clear as any message could be, it's this. Judas, I see you. I see you all the way to the bottom. I see all the, I see your soul. I know everything. I know what you've done. Judas, I still love you. That's what that would have meant. This is one last blast of grace and love into a slowly darkening heart. You know, I once heard an interview done with J.R. Tolkien, the author of um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, before he died. And during the interview, he was asked something so interesting. They said, Lord of the Rings is 600,000 words long, three huge volumes. Do you ever reread the books yourself? And J.R. Tolkien replied, yes, sometimes I reread it. And then he was asked, is there any part that gets to you any part of the books that moves you most? And Tolkien replied, yes, there is one spot at the end of the second book that he can never reread without being moved to tears. You see, Gollum is a hobbit who over the years had become very cruel and evil being because he had given way to sin in his sinful nature. But he gets a new master called Frodo who loves him. And slowly over time, because of Frodo's kindness and love, Gollum starts to melt a little bit. But then at a certain point, Gollum sets up a betrayal. He sets up a trap for Frodo and Sam. And on his return, he sees Frodo sleeping. And it says, slowly putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously, Gollum touched Frodo's knee. 
but almost the touch was a caress. Then for a moment, Gollum softens and thinks he needs to repent. But Frodo stirs in his sleep, perhaps um, responding to a nightmare, at the very moment Gollum touches him. His cry awakens Sam. His cry awakens Sam, and Sam accuses Gollum of sneaking around. You old villain, he calls him. But once he sees that Gollum meant no harm, Sam apologizes for having wrongly accused him. But it's too late. Gollum uses Sam's taunt as an excuse to return to his old self. Gollum suddenly looks up, and the green glint comes back into his eyes, and the text says, the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. J.R.R. Tolkien says he can never read that without weeping. It's a Judas moment, a betrayal and a chance to repent, but sometimes when we resist, that chance becomes a fleeting moment that passes by beyond recall. How does Judas respond when Jesus passes Judas the piece of bread? It says in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. If there was any fleeting moment of repentance at all, it's gone now. It's gone in this moment, beyond recall. And Jesus sees it, and he knows it. And it says, So Jesus said to him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Interestingly, John is not simply saying that, by the way, it was nighttime. One of the great literary themes of the book of John is darkness and light. And when it says that Judas went out into the night, it is saying that when he plunged himself into the physical darkness, he was plunging himself into spiritual darkness. You see, when we ignore our sin long enough or justify it long enough, it has the power to grow. You see, earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, it says that Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So he kind of gives him a thought. And in verse 27, it says that as soon as Judas took the bread... Satan entered into him. You see, that's progression. What it's saying in the beginning, sin is sort of something outside of you, crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, like Genesis 4 says. But then before you know it, it's inside and dominating you. James 1 puts it this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, sin grows. Sin starts off as something you seem to have control of, a little dabbling here and a little dabbling there. But if we ignore the promptings and the conviction of the Holy Spirit long enough, sin grows. And you end up doing things you never thought you were capable of doing. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. Later on in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, says this, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. 
Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. You know, I had to preach on similar passages two years ago, almost exactly to the day. And if I'm honest, my heart kind of sank a little when I saw the passages that Craig gave me to preach because I looked at it and thought, Judas again? Ah. It's saint because these passages are so confronting and challenging because it makes me confront my own Judas tendencies. And I said this two years ago, and it bears saying again, because here's the scary thought, church. The life of Judas makes one thing clear to us, that being around Jesus and the things of Jesus does not mean that you are following Jesus. Judas was one of the 12, and the Gospels keep saying that over and over. He was one of us, one of the 12. Judas Iscariot was handpicked by Jesus to be one of the 12. Judas lived day in and day out with Jesus for three years. He ate hummus with Jesus, sat around campfires with Jesus. He had a front row seat to all of Jesus' miracles and all of his messages. And as one of the 12, listen to what Judas would have seen hanging out with Jesus for three years straight. And these are just a few of the highlights. In Matthew 12, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Later in the same chapter, a man comes to Jesus who is demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and Jesus heals him. Jesus feeds 5,000 men and their families with a piece of fish and bread. Judas would have been one of the ones passing out the endless supply of food. Judas is one of the ones who personally witnesses Jesus walking on water. He witnesses people who are sick with disease get healed simply by touching the thread of Jesus' cloak. Judas saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seen because of Jesus. Judas is there for the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and witnesses a worship service break out because the crowds recognize greatness. At the end of John's gospel, he writes that Jesus did so many other things that if every one were to be written, the world itself could not contain the books. Judas had front row tickets to all of it. And yet, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How does that even happen? When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, according to Matthew's gospel, it starts this chain reaction around the table um, of each disciple of, is it I, Lord? You see, in the Greek, that statement implies a negative response. It's the same thing as saying, it's not I, Lord. And so they go around, it's not I, Lord, it's not I, Lord, it's not I, Lord. And then it, goes, it gets to Judas, and he says, it's not I, Rabbi. You see, 11 of the disciples knew Jesus as Lord. Judas knew Jesus as Rabbi. You see, Lord and Rabbi are significant titles of honor and respect, but Lord is so much more superior, a superior title than Rabbi. Lord means master. Rabbi means teacher. The disciples were all in the upper room physically, but on different planets in terms of how they viewed Jesus. You see, to know Jesus as rabbi is to know him as teacher and as a source of wisdom. And when we want to know what to do in any situation of our life, 
We consult his teaching, and if we agree with it, we obey it. If it doesn't agree with what we want to hear or do, we jump ship and, and go in search of another teaching or another podcast that tells us what we want to hear. So betrayal is always an option. Judas had best head knowledge of who Jesus was and what he could do, but he had no personal experience of who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. He never let the truth and grace of who Jesus was invade and transform his heart from the inside out and heal what was so broken inside Judas. Second Corinthians says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And that's what happened to Judas. Matthew 27 says this. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they said. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. What is so tragic here is that Judas had remorse, but not repentance. He feels bad, but he doesn't change. See, the reality is that all the disciples betrayed Jesus. Peter denies even knowing him three times, and the rest just run. And then it says that Peter wept bitterly, and he was devastated, and he felt horrific about his denial of Jesus. And as soon as Peter heard that Jesus was alive after the resurrection, he runs to the tomb, the Bible says, looking for Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to look Jesus in the eye. He wants to tell Jesus he's sorry. He wanted to ask for forgiveness. You see, that's repentance. And Peter did change. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a changed and transformed man. Judas had remorse, but not repentance. He feels bad but he never changed. And in the book of Acts, it says that Judas had remorse, but rather than repenting, he turned aside and went his own way. Judas's tragic life is a wake-up call for all of us, church. It's not meant to condemn us, but to celebrate that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. That repentance is a gift. Romans 8 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came down from heaven to earth to proclaim freedom for the captive. Jesus came to set people free from the bondage of sin. Jesus was nailed to a cross and took upon himself all our shame and all our sin. He broke the bondage of sin, and that means sin need not reign in our hearts anymore. Church, that's some good news right there. And for those of us who are put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior means his spirit dwells within us. And now our spiritual life, this side of the cross, means that we now move away from those things and those desires that would isolate us from our Lord and King and that we move towards those things that stir and foster intimacy with him. He is Lord. 
And that means we follow him. Where he says to go, you go. Where he says to do, you do. So we follow him. And we follow him imperfectly. But we still follow. Why? Because we trust and believe that his way is the best way. Because he is the way. The only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is your life. Amen? Amen. Now, I don't want us to end on a bummer. I am loving this new song, Glorious Day, that the worship team introduced to us this morning. I love the lyrics so much because it's my story. It's your story. It's our story of what God does. I was crushed by sin and shame, but he called my name, and I ran out of that grave. May you stand and sing it with gusto and with all your heart. And I'll pray for us after.
of that song would be true in us. And I hope what you're not hearing me say, how a lot of sermons can go, where it says, God is good, you're bad, stop it. That's not what I'm saying. What I do want us sometime today, whether it's up the front with the prayer team, or later, but today, that we would avail ourselves to God to let us examine our hearts and expose areas where we are resisting you. And if you sense God prompting you to put something right or to confess something, or even to come up for prayer, church, as you value your life, respond. Respond, because it's a holy moment. The gift of repentance, it's a holy thing. And I pray that you would carve out time to get with Jesus ask him because the treasure would be that it would be a fleeting moment gone without recall let that not be true of us and I know that's what I'm going to do because you don't study the life of Judas and not think God sometimes it's me I want my life to look more like Jesus than Judas amen can we pray for us God, you always extend grace and truth to us. Mercy and grace. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you, God, for the gift of it. May we find time to be with you. We are imperfect people, and yet you love us. You love us Thank you, God. We honor and we bless you. Be with your people today, God. Heal what is broken in us. May we bend the knee. You are the Lord. In Jesus' precious name.